As we come now to God's Word, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel in chapter 13. You could also just listen if you wish. The Pubile is a slightly different translation than mine, but it's essentially the same. That's 2 Samuel in chapter 13. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, your word is living and active. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Lord, would you use your word now to pierce our hearts, to draw out sin in us and to draw us close to you. Would you guide us now by your spirit, help us as we read to understand and to believe. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is 2 Samuel in chapter 13. Uh, we'll begin at the end of the section we read last week in verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter. It's a long section, I know, but, but we can handle it. Uh, so this is 2 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. And so Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let's not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. And then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't fear. Have I not commanded you, be courageous and valiant? So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on their way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, not one of them is left. And then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young, man, young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. 
For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant has said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. This is God's word. Now I know there's a lot to process in there. There's a lot going on. We're watching real life happen here. And in summary... We're watching the unraveling of the house and the kingdom of David. You'll remember, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, that David was then confronted with his own very serious sin by the prophet Nathan. And in that confrontation, David was told, you will not die or you will not perish apart from the Lord. In other words, your sin, David, is forgiven. However... As part of the consequence for that sin, Nathan says, the sword will not depart from your house. And here we're starting to see the beginnings of that come true as that unfolds. Amongst the sons of David, which there are many, there is one brother, Absalom, who murders another brother, Amnon. Now, why... Did Absalom do this? Some say that Absalom, the son of David, is vying for the kingdom here, that he's gunning for David's throne. We know Amnon, the one he's just murdered, was David's firstborn son, and he's now dead. David had a second son named Kiliab, which is only mentioned in the genealogy, so that makes scholars say, and I agree, that it seems as if he had died at a young age. So the first is dead, the second was dead, and now the third son of David is Absalom. So perhaps now he was setting himself in line to be king. Perhaps that was the reason why he murdered the firstborn son, but I don't think that's the main reason, at least. The text says here that it was because he hated Amnon for violating his sister. There were awful things done to her by Amnon. And Absalom had to watch the pain that his sister Tamar went through, which is its own kind of awful, to watch someone you love suffer. And so Absalom wants to do something about this wrong. And so he does. Absalom does something. 
he takes revenge on Amnon. That's what we'll look at this morning. We're going to look at revenge, specifically three questions about revenge. If you like things nice and tidy, this is for you. The three questions are revenge, what is it? Where did it come from? And what's the alternative? Revenge, what is it? Where did it come from? And what's the alternative? Here we go. Let's look at that first question. What is revenge? Revenge is not the same, according to the scripture, as justice. This is not the Avengers here, superhero or otherwise. The scripture says that the Lord is a God of vengeance. In fact, it sings about that at the beginning of uh, of Psalm 94. So to avenge can be good, at least in the hand of the Lord. Revenge, however, is bad. Vengeance and revenge are different. Revenge, here's here's what I'm going to define it as, revenge is self-appointed vengeance. Revenge is self-appointed vengeance. In other words, this is a vigilante, a person who takes matters solely into his own hands, a person who decides that he can be judge, jury, and executioner. And a person who does these things often is attempting at justice somehow. And sometimes it's even perceived that way, that justice is done. But revenge is actually a perversion of justice. The scripture teaches us how to respond personally to sin, and it is never with revenge. You can see in Romans chapter 12, several verses here. You can turn there if you wish or just listen. Romans 12, starting in verse 17, Paul says this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is really a radical approach to wrong. When I see something that is wrong, or when I myself have been wronged, typically everything inside of me screams, go get them. You know, let, let me at them. I, 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 I want to do something personally about this. And the Lord says, no, hold your ground. Do not avenge yourself. That is revenge. Your end, your goal, your hope is, if possible, as far as it is left up to you to live peaceably, to overcome evil, not with evil, but with good. 
And this is not a natural response to us. But this is the path of Jesus. And it's a stunning way to live. In fact, it's so stunning that when we actually see a person living this way, we know that it must be part of a supernatural work of God's grace in their lives. In fact, we saw this played out in the life of David in his earlier years when Saul was king. You'll remember back in 1 Samuel, you don't have to turn here, but as a summary, Saul the king had grown jealous of David. Um, he, he grew bitter, he, and so he eventually determined to kill uh, David. In fact, he tried to stab him to the wall with a spear. And so as the months went by, and, and this turned to years, he eventually saw the king brought his full army against David. And so David flees with just a, a few men. And David and his men eventually end up hiding in a cave. And Saul's pursuing him with his huge army. And Saul happens to stop at that very same cave to use, the scripture says, the bathroom. True story. And I suppose that's the secure and dignified thing for a king to do, is to find a cave and just discreetly step in there. But he goes into the same cave that David is deeper in to use the restroom. And, and David, hiding in there, with his men say to David, David, here's your chance. Here, here, here's your shot at vengeance. The Lord has handed Saul to you on a silver platter. And so... In that dark cave, David sneaks up behind Saul, pulls out his knife, and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, but leaves him alone. And after Saul leaves, just a, a little bit away, David calls out to him and says, I could have taken your life. Look, here is your robe. Verse, uh, this is in chapter 24, a verse of 1 Samuel he says, David says to Saul, though you hunt my life to take it, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. In other words, it is not mine to take into my own hands. It is not my own to revenge myself. Do you know King Saul's response to that experience? He wept. He broke down and said to David, you are far more righteous than I. I gave you evil for good, but you have given me good for evil. Do you see how life-changing that is? To, instead of perpetuating the cycle of evil with revenge, to break that cycle of evil by overcoming the evil with good. So there's our first question. What is revenge? Now, that moves us into our second one. Revenge, where does it come from? There are many places in the scripture, roots of revenge. But we see in Absalom's act of revenge some patterns that tend to run true. So if, if, maybe you tracked with what the narrative was telling us, but after Amnon, or after Absalom had Amnon killed, it was reported to David that all of his sons had been killed. 
and there was some confusion about who actually was dead, and, and, and the news was kind of confusing. And this guy Jonadab is with David, and he says, no, no, not all of them are killed. I'm pretty sure it's just Amnon who's dead. And the reason why I know that it's him is because he says in verse 32, he says, Absalom has determined this from the day that Amnon violated his sister. Some, some Bibles translate this word determined that uh, Absalom, this was his express intention. Some say this was his plan. Some say this was his plot. And he'd been cooking on this for quite some time. Did you notice that it's been two years, says the text, since the original violation happened? That after Tamar was, was raped by Amnon, Absalom says to her gently, supportively, Tamar, hold your peace. Don't, don't take this to heart. In other words, don't let this determine the whole future of your life. But Absalom did not heed his own words. He took it to heart. And it dominated his life. As days turned to weeks, turned to months, turned to years, anger took root in his heart. And anger gave birth to hate until he killed Amnon out of revenge. Where does revenge come from? Revenge is often born out of anger. And anger even makes us, convinces us, that revenge is morally justified. This is the kind of thing that leads a person to key someone's car because they took your parking space. Anger that leads to revenge is the kind of thing that leads to publishing personal and intimate pictures of an ex on the internet. It's the kind of thing that leads a person to murder an abortion doctor, say. Because we think that these people deserve it somehow. And perhaps they do deserve uh, some measure of justice, but revenge, which comes from anger, says, I will be the one to make them pay. I will do it. And that is a dangerous game. Paul writes about this in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, let's see, verse 26, Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Just a few words there. He's addressing how to properly handle the fires of anger. And we don't want to take what he says too strictly literally here when he talks about not letting the sun go down on our anger. Have you ever, well, have you ever, you have, you know you have, gotten into an argument with a spouse or a mom or a child or someone at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, right before bed, whenever your bedtime is. You're now both angry and just tired, which is a really bad concoction. 
and you know you're not getting anywhere close to resolving it anytime soon. So sometimes it is wise <laughs> to agree in those moments to just press pause on the argument, go to bed, get some sleep, We'll pick it up in the morning when we're more rested and clearer and in our minds calmer. And some people even need a little bit of time to process. So you see his point when he says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. He doesn't literally mean don't let the sun set. He means deal with it soon. Don't leave it to rot like Tupperware in the back of your fridge. If you do, if you leave that anger in your heart, you are giving an opportunity, he says, to Satan. That Satan will take that seed and grow it and will coax us in the direction of things like hate and eventually revenge. Now, I know hate and revenge are pretty strong, dramatic words. But I want to point out that we are all vulnerable to this. None of us is immune. If you don't think of yourself as a particularly angry person, that may be true in some sense, but it may also be true that your anger probably just expresses itself differently. So while some in anger, their mouth explodes, other in anger, their mouth becomes tight-lipped. Others grow quiet, silent, and they silently seethe in their anger. Some find little, subtle, passive ways to get at the person who has made them angry. Do you store a running list of wrongs in your head that you can pull up at any moment? If so, the sun is going down on your anger, and you are giving an opportunity to Satan. Those things need to be confessed so that we can ask for forgiveness and, and change by the grace of God that we can put those things away. And, and it's no use saying to God or to anyone else, but he did this, but she did that. What have you done? That's why in the law of God, in Leviticus, words it this way, just a short sentence or two here in Leviticus 19, verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you hear it there? And he says, don't let anger set in lest you, uh, lest you will incur sin. One of the hardest things for me personally, one of the biggest struggles of mine when it comes to sin is not to respond to someone else's sin against me with my own sin. They hurt me, so I'll hurt them. 
They said this about me, so I'll say this about them. They did this to me, so I'll do this to them. That's revenge. And it's poisonous. I want, we want to be transformed, to be like Jesus. The path of Jesus is really a stunning way to live. In fact, it's so stunning that when we see people live this way, we know that it must be a supernatural work of God's grace in their lives. Finally, third question. If revenge is so poisonous, and it is, what is the alternative? What's the alternative to revenge? Well, you've heard pieces of this in the verses that we've sprinkled through. Leviticus talks about uh, the alternative to revenge and to grudges being love. And love is not just a simple forgive and forget. Nor is it inaction in the face of wrongdoing. Love of this sort is compatible with justice. In fact, love calls for justice. That's the alternative, by the way. Love that calls for justice. So how can a person say they love Tamar, who has had horrible things done to her, and not desire justice for her on some level? that something would be done on her behalf, that some of what Absalom has done is wrong, but we can understand, I think, where he's coming from. The Lord in love, then, does not call for revenge. Instead, he says, I will bring justice to this. We see in the Bible a number of occasions where the Lord carries out his justice directly. And usually when we see those moments, it's bone-chilling to look at in the scripture, almost frightening. But these occasions where the Lord is directly dispensing his justice, those occasions in the scripture are the exception. They're not the rule. The way the Lord typically carries out his justice on the earth is through systems and groups of people. So way back, even before the giving of the Ten Commandments, in fact, the chapter before, chapters before that, in Exodus chapter 18, Moses is now leading the people of Israel uh, out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, and Moses sets up a system of judges. These are men, he says, who, who fear God, who hate bribes, and who are trustworthy. And so he finds these people and he sets them up over groups of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And the intent of these leaders is to decide cases as a third party. To to, to the best of their ability, they're trying to to rely upon the, the law and the wisdom and the mercy of God to carry out justice without the need for revenge. The system, then, in the Old Testament of these judges and courts and elders, it changes slightly throughout the course of the Old Testament. But the principle remains, 
that there would be appointed leaders who would carry out the justice. Even into the New Testament, Paul talks about governing authorities in Romans chapter 13 as servants of God who are, he says, avengers, ones who are appointed to to carry out the wrath of God upon wrongdoing. Now, even though there are appointed leaders to dispense justice, the difficulty with this is that justice is not always done because humans are limited and sinful. And so sometimes in the attempt to dispense justice, we see mistakes. Uh, We see occasions where uh, someone sits in jail for decades until DNA evidence comes to light and, and they're exonerated and finally released for something they did not do. We see sometimes gaps in justice where someone is guilty, but there's just not enough evidence to convict. And so they go free. We see corruption in justice. Sometimes there's abuses of power, even in courts, even in in police systems and government. And we sometimes see negligence of justice, as is the case of Tamar, where for two years she is just forgotten. What, What is a Christian to do? We want to work to redeem these things if we're able to have God's justice play out on earth as it is in heaven, but we know that it's not so simple. I mean, if life were a TV courtroom drama, you know, the the season finale, we would come and we'd get a nice confession from the villain, so we would know for sure, but nice, tidy, clear, we would know exactly what was done and then what needs to be done, and, and, and probably some lawyers would fall in love in the process. But we know that life is much more complex than that. So how do we not turn to revenge as Absalom has done? Very often, we say the Apostles' Creed together. And every time we do that, we say of Jesus that he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That's true, according to the scripture. The wording is a little old. I'm neither quick nor dead, so I seem fine. Uh, But, you know, quick means the living, the living and the dead, that all will go before the judgment seat of God. There will come a day when our God, who is holy and wise and just, will carry out his perfect justice. And all will come before him. David, Absalom, Amnon, Tamar, me, you. Does the assurance of God's justice stir in you hope or fear? Perhaps there's some of both. 
You have to wonder how the assurance of God's justice would have struck Absalom or Amnon or Tamar. That each of these, in in some areas of their life, might long for the justice of the Lord to be done. And yet in other areas of their life might dread the justice of the Lord. Because they know their own guilt. This is why it's so important for us to put our faith in Jesus. The author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. The author says this, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The path that Jesus took was such a stunning way to live. It's a supernatural work of his grace that he would take upon himself the justice of wrath that we have earned so that we might be saved for all who wait for him by faith. And it's only when we have rest in Jesus that we can abandon our pursuits toward revenge and trust his wisdom in love and justice. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, would you help us to find rest and hope in your justice? And Lord, when we fear because of our own guilt, would you help us to run to you and to find safety in your cross and your sacrifice for us? We know your ways are good and right. Thank you for being our God. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.